You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 14. This lecture will be a third contribution to the topic, to the discussion of section 4 of chapter 2, which in general deals with teleology. The use of that word teleology has a good cholesterol and a bad cholesterol sense, we've emphasized, namely the way in which the human being does have an intrinsic teleology, that is to fulfill the possibilities and the potentialities of the human person, the human, the dignity that is appropriate to the human person, finding in interesting and creative ways opportunities to live that out. And then further, a teleology that is directed toward our end, which is God, union with God, eternal union with God in heaven. In addition, there are teleological considerations which are perfectly appropriate, how to arrange specific acts to get to some end, and that end in turn serves as a means to get to a further end and a further end yet. This is what it means to navigate life. It's why we go to school and take all the courses we do to get the college degree, to get a good job, that we'll be in a position to support a family, to do our jobs as men and women that will appropriately bring ourselves and our spouses and our children to heaven. So much of teleology perfectly good and appropriate. The bad cholesterol sense of teleology, those who pursue it are called teleologists, are some form of consequentialism or proportionalism, or more generally, utilitarianism within moral reasoning. And they've latched on to something that's good and appropriate, the importance of consequences, but they have made it inappropriate by the way in which they use consequences for moral analysis, insisting that anything is possibly to be evaluated, and it's only the evaluation of the consequences alone which is decisive for morality. That's the mistake that John Paul II has been pointing out. So, what I'd like to do in this lecture is to turn to one of the topics that still needs to be handled in greater detail, and it occurs toward the end of Section 4, and that's the topic of intrinsic evil. That's a topic of great debate and controversy for those who take a proportionalist or a consequentialist approach tend to deny that there are any intrinsic evils. Pope John Paul II stands with the tradition of the Church and will try to give as good an explanation as he can for why the Church uses this category and how it applies. His reasoning in getting to his list of intrinsic evils, I'd like to start at paragraph 77, which sums up the points I was making in the last lecture and gives us an opportunity to have a nice firm starting base. First, any proper moral analysis of an action requires that we undertake the intention, the consequences, and the moral species of the action into consideration. In taking the intention here at paragraph 77, Pope John Paul II reminds us of the Bible's insistence on this. He quotes in particular Mark chapter 7 verses 20 and 21 in order to make his point. Jesus at this particular passage in scripture is dealing with some of the Pharisees and the scribes who were very intent upon doing certain kinds of actions and not doing certain other kinds of actions 
In a way, they were trained by the Holiness Code in Leviticus. The Holiness Code in Leviticus had specified all sorts of things you must do and not do. They were those 613 commandments or statutes, which form a kind of picket fence around the Decalogue. I think the goal of that was really quite noble and worthy, namely to be so intent and focused upon practical details in life that one would never get around possibly to offending against any of the Decalogue. By itself, quite worthy. You can understand why Jesus gave so much time to talking with the Pharisees, for I think he admired their love for the law as God's great gift to them. And yet, in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 21, he upbraids them for being so concerned with actions, doing this, not doing that, that they've forgotten the reason. They've forgotten the real love for the Lord, and that they sometimes are willing to focus on keeping the little details of the law and missing the big picture. It's for this reason that at other parts of the Gospels, he will tell them, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the way in which they may need to violate some of the little statutes of the law, in, for instance, being willing to touch a bloody body in order to care for this particular individual who lies wounded on the roadway. So he's focusing in on the importance of intention. Likewise, John Paul II has stressed so often the importance of the moral species, that is, the way in which the object of a given act, the Phoenix operis, tells us what kind of an act it is and notices that some kinds of acts are appropriate in this circumstance and not appropriate in that circumstance, but that other kinds of moral action are not appropriate anywhere. They can never in any way contribute to the dignity, respect for the dignity of the person, nor the person's goal in union with God. And so they come to be regarded as these intrinsically evil actions. Notice that what he is saying, he does so in paragraph 78, the morality of the human act depends primarily and fundamentally on its moral object, the rationally chosen object. And to ascertain what this object is, what one must do, this is so typical in terms of the terminology of John Paul II, one must put oneself in the perspective of the acting person. I think that's a marvelous phrase, and what I think it means is this. In the effort to try to look at the Phoenix operis, in the effort to try to really understand what is it that this type of action is aimed at, one puts oneself in the perspective of the person who would do such an act and be asking, what is the act driving at? What is it that the act would accomplish? What is it the act would prevent from being accomplished? One doesn't particularly look at it from the point of view of why does this person do it or that person do it. That's important too, but that's the perspective of the Phoenix operantis. That's the perspective of the intention. And I am the only one in conscience who can know my own intention. I might tell it to you or tell it to you. I might be able to tell somebody else my intention. And yet, interestingly, it's still a question of did I even know myself well enough? Sometimes we are fooled in terms of how we have rationalized what our own intention is. So getting at intentionality is difficult. And interestingly to me, civil law takes that into consideration. Yet generally in civil law, there is no consideration about what the intention of the agent was because it's so hard to get at. What they want to know is, was there a killing? Was there a killing which had a possible purpose. That is, was it, does it, 
did it appear to have been deliberate and a forethought, or was it homicide, unintentional perhaps? And they will try to get at the question of whether or not the person did it deliberately and willfully. But ultimately what's wrong <coughs> with the killing is that it's the killing of an innocent person done by a voluntary agent, whatever the voluntary agent's purpose was. Often a lawyer will have to show motive or attack the question of motive in a court of law, but ultimately the decision doesn't rest upon knowing the motive. The decision rests upon knowing the action and having grounds for thinking that it was deliberate and voluntary. In a way, the law is here respecting the same point. What John Paul II is doing in paragraph 78 is focusing on the enormous importance of identifying what type of action it is. This, in a way, has to be the starting point for doing a proper moral analysis, and it may not be skipped over in a way that utilitarian thinking tends to skip over it. In focusing on this, one sees this not only in the pages of Veritatis Splendor, but in the pages of the Catechism. Let me read a brief section from paragraph 1756 of the Catechism, and it tries to make the point that John Paul II will be making in much greater detail in this portion of Veritatis Splendor. This is 1756. He says, it says, it is therefore an error to judge the morality of human acts by considering only the intention that inspires them or the circumstances, the environment, the social pressure, duress, emergency, etc., which supply their context. Important word in that first sentence was only. It is appropriate to consider intention. It is appropriate to consider circumstances, but not to do only one or only the other, or even only the two of them. Here's the next sentence. There are acts which, in and of themselves, independently of circumstances and intentions, are always gravely illicit by reason of their object, such as blasphemy and perjury, murder and adultery. One may not do evil so that good may result from it. Now, the Catechism takes only a relatively small list there, but notice its clarity in focusing in on the object of the action. Whatever the intention of the actor is, blasphemy, some statement that is false, either claiming to be God when one is not God, denying that something, that true God is truly God, an act of blasphemy, no matter what one's intention in doing it, always and everywhere wrong. Perjury is always and everywhere wrong. Perjury, of course, is lying under oath. In the last lecture, I was giving lying as an example, and I was intending to define it very carefully. Telling an untruth by, with an intention to deceive those who have a right to know. Given the complications of the definition of lying, Part of what I do by using that as an example in last lecture and in this is focus on that fact of the right to know. In the very, very solemn circumstances of a court, when we are asked to swear, perhaps swearing on a Bible, swearing under oath, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. What we are doing there is very solemnly assuring whoever it is that we're testifying to that we will not lie. We are acknowledging the jurisdiction of the court before whom we are testifying, acknowledging that they have a right to know. 
in such a court, as you know, there is what is called the Fifth Amendment right. That is, one doesn't have to incriminate oneself. But the way the Fifth Amendment right is invoked is, I'm on the witness stand, I've already so testified, and I, somebody asks me a question that asks me to incriminate myself, and I say I take the Fifth Amendment. Happen to know that number. Or if one of these says, I don't want to say that. The person is not lying. The person is refusing to answer. And it is understood in a court of law that the um, accuser, that the prosecutor, has to provide positive evidence and that the person himself who is being charged with a given crime is not required to incriminate himself. We respect that as a procedural part of law. In doing so here, the catechism is taking note that there is a case when there's no doubt about the right to know, and one has solemnly testified to it by an oath. And so this is one of those intrinsic evils. You can't declare, I promise to tell the truth in anything that I do choose to say, and then proceed to lie. Murder, deliberate taking of an innocent human life. Adultery, deliberately engaging in sexual intercourse with someone who is not one's spouse, when one himself is married or when the other person is married. Those things are wrong in every and any case. And what the church's position on this is, is that under no circumstances, no matter what the intention, no matter what the likely consequences, the foreseeable consequences, in no case may those things thought to be justified. The position against which the Pope is arguing would maintain even in those situations, even in the case of blasphemy or perjury, even in the case of adultery or murder, there would be a set of circumstances that one could imagine in which the evil of holding fast to that would outweigh the good, and so that the good would require breaking those particular uh, otherwise strong prohibitions. <coughs> We see this in the Catechism, which provides a good summary. And what the notion here is that a good intention, very valuable, but not enough to correct an intrinsic evil. Likewise, good consequences, not enough to correct a situation in which one would have to undertake an intrinsically wrong action, or one to take an action which is neutral in order to get evil effects that good in turn may occur. What is the reason why? In a way, this is the heart and the soul of Veritatis Splendor. Here it is, paragraph number 78, very important paragraph. What John Paul II is insisting is that the ultimate reason why we put so much focus on the nature of the act is that the human act really truly depends upon the object for its moral species. What kind of an act is it? And is it an act that can be ordered in such a way as to promote, enhance, respect human dignity, and respect the purpose of human life, namely praising, reverencing, and serving God our Lord, so that we may someday be in union with him. The test is precisely that. Can this act be ordered to human dignity? Can it be ordered to God? If not, it is called an intrinsic evil. On this subject, we turn to paragraph 79, also important. Paragraph 79 begins with an allusion to a line from St. Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 8. As the subtitle, then, for that section, after the words intrinsic evil, we have the reference. It is not licit to do evil that good may come of it. This is very, very deeply and prominently 
part of John Paul II's analysis here, that it is not right ever to do evil that good may come. Sometimes one may not be able to prevent evil. We are mindful that there are tragic circumstances in life. But one may never do that which one knows to be intrinsically disordered, whatever it is that one hope will come as an immediate good as the result of it. This intrinsic disorder is something that is of that stature. When St. Paul says it, he is announcing something of enormous importance for Christian morality. He is not the first to say it. I could submit to you that I think that it was said already among the Greeks. When Socrates, for instance, was attempting to give an account to his fellow Athenians in the Apology, he is already mindful that he's faced with a difficult situation. He's faced with the fact that he is hated by some powerful people who have put him on trial. And he knows that if he were to tell certain lies, or later after he's convicted, that if he were to escape, or to attempt escape, he might be able to bring about, you might say, a better consequence. He would not have to endure any of the punishment, or he would not have to endure the specific punishment of death. But the way in which Socrates argues is an interesting anticipation of what Jesus himself insists and what St. Paul declares formally there at Romans 3.8. One may never do evil that good may come. If one can't do evil that good may come, doesn't that mean that there will have to be sacrifices? Doesn't it mean that one will have to even consider martyrdom? And the answer to that is yes. One thinks, for instance, of Socrates, who, even as a Greek and a pagan, knew nothing of Judaism or Christianity, even Socrates is willing to go to his death. And many of those dialogues that are around the time of his death, the Apology, the Crito, the Phaedo, give very interesting evidence of how he already understood that it was not appropriate, it was deeply inappropriate and illicit ever to do evil that good may come, to try to merely save his life by telling a lie, to try to overwhelm the punishment that his state by a trial of his peers was imposing on him by now taking the law matters into his own hands. He refuses to do so. This, of course, is the situation that Jesus exemplifies as that perfectly innocent one who is willing to go to death for our sakes. And part of the understanding of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross and his work of redemption for us is that he is the one person who has no sin whatsoever. He has no guilt upon him, and yet he is made to suffer for the likes of us. And this is part of what the mystery of the redemption is about. St. Paul, reflecting on it after his conversion, makes this of enormous prominence. Romans chapter 3, verse 8. By contrast, consequentialist and proportionalist theories of morality deny that there is the possibility of ever getting to such a situation. And whatever the case, they would propose that there is some circumstance in which the proportion would be the reverse. Hence, they are unwilling ever to say that anything is an intrinsic evil. In fact, they are ignoring the nature of the object. And what John Paul II tries to repeat and to give us in his explanation is that a deeper consideration of what the object is would bring about this particular understanding. Let's look for a minute at the text in Veritatis Splendor when John Paul II starts to talk about this and to give his examples. It too would be very much worthy of your deeper consideration. I'm reading here from paragraph 80 toward the end of chapter 2, section 4. 
Reason, it says, attests that there are objects of the human act, which are by their very nature incapable of being ordered to God because they radically contradict the good of the person made in his image. You see in his opening line the points that I've been trying to make. We have to have a respect for God and his will. We have to have a respect for the dignity in which we are made as his image. These are the acts which, in the church's moral tradition, have been termed intrinsically evil. They are such always and per se. In other words, on account of their very object, and quite apart from the ulterior intentions of the one acting, and apart from the circumstances. Consequently, without in the least denying the influence of morality exercised by circumstances, and especially by intentions, the Church teaches that there exist acts which per se and in themselves, independently of circumstances, are always seriously wrong by reason of their object. Thus far, he is saying, and I've been trying to explain, the very same point. Now what happens next in paragraph 80 is that he gives a list of intrinsically evil acts. And so I thought that it would be valuable for us for a few minutes here toward the end of this lecture to consider what is on the list. The list is not of his devising. Rather, it comes from Gaudium et Spes, the document from the Second Vatican Council about the nature of the church in the modern world, and it's paragraph 27 within Gaudium et Spes. But by considering his cases, perhaps one can see why he regards them as so inherently disreputable. The Second Vatican Council itself, in discussing the respect due to the human person, gives a number of examples of such acts. Some on the list might surprise us, but it's worthwhile pondering this. I think this would be a wonderful lesson for anybody just to sit and ponder with this and to think through each of these in turn. Here's the list. Whatever is hostile to life itself, such as any kind of homicide, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, and voluntary suicide. Notice what's on his list and what's not on his list. He notices that there is the prospect of using lethal force in self-defense, but that's using it against an aggressor attacking the innocent, myself or those who are in my charge or those whom I happen to be with. Likewise, he notices that a police officer or someone in the military service might have to use lethal force with respect to an unjust aggressor who is attacking your country, or an unjust aggressor who is attacking innocent civilians. An individual is only permitted to use lethal force when public authority is unavailable. So he doesn't exclude those kinds of killing, mindful of that important difference between dignity sense one and dignity sense two, the basic human dignity we have as opposed to the moral dignity. An aggressor loses his moral dignity by the very act of aggression and there may need to be lethal force used to protect the innocent. But voluntarily and deliberately to do it, whether with abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, genocide, voluntary suicide, all of those are intrinsically wrong. One should consider this especially with the references to suicide and euthanasia, because there is so much unsettlement in our culture, thinking that voluntary suicide is acceptable, thinking that euthanasia might actually be a good thing. His judgment is, Vatican II's judgment is, that those are intrinsic evils. Next group. Whatever violates the integrity of the human person, such as mutilation, 
physical and mental torture, and attempts to coerce the spirit. Mutilation, for instance, severely removing or severely wounding a person by removing body parts. Physical and mental torture. It could be the torture by excruciating pain. It could be even by mental torture. Those things are intrinsically evil. This, of course, very, very hot topic during some of the recent wars in the Middle East and the capture of prisoners. What may actually be done in the efforts to extract information? Often there is highly utilitarian reasoning given there. Now, I think you need to be circumspect about this because I think that some of the things that some people think of as torture aren't really torture. There can be pressure exerted. But as any good police officer or military official will tell you, using real torturous pain still gives you no indication that the person is telling the truth. They'll tell you anything to make the pain stop. And one of the things that they must do is to know how to use pressure, but not to use excessive pressure that would become torturous, because when the pressure becomes truly torturous, the information is no good. John Paul II gives them an even higher reason. It isn't in accord with the dignity of a prisoner. Attempts to coerce the spirit. There are many attempts to coerce the spirit. I think even of some of the nastiness of politics sometimes, when enormous pressure by influential people is put upon people of somewhat weaker constitution, trying to make those people of weaker constitution do the will of the more powerful. John Paul II, following Vatican II, regards that as intrinsically evil. Here's the next group. Whatever is offensive to human dignity, such as subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, prostitution, and trafficking in women and children. Of course, one notices that sometimes there are degrading living situations. Nobody particularly designed them. I was just down in Haiti giving a retreat for the missionaries of charity, and one can't help but see some of the awful living conditions. One must do everything one can in solidarity to try to improve those living conditions. What he is suggesting what he is saying following Vatican II is an intrinsic evil, is deliberately to put someone in such situations, deliberately to enslave them or to subject them to subhuman living conditions, arbitrarily to imprison them. Obviously, there is a need to imprison those who have been convicted by a jury of their reasonable peers of vicious crimes <coughs> may need to be imprisoned. But imprisonment should still respect the dignity of the person. Slavery, prostitution, trafficking. Here's the next set. Degrading conditions of work which treat laborers as mere instruments of profit and not as free and responsible persons. There's work and there is work. And part of the nature of work, as John Paul II argued in Labrum Exerchens, is that the work must respect the dignity of the human worker. You know, I think of my dear father when he retired from long years of working for U.S. Steel, and they had a bit of a party, a bit of a dinner, and Dad got up to give a little speech. And what he said was how grateful he was to that company for whom he had worked for 35 years. Because even when there were steel strikes that had long idled the steel plants, the company was good and somehow kept the office staff, of which he belonged, somehow kept them busy with various projects that needed done around the office. And he said, I didn't always like the work. I'd often found it very hard to do hard to put up with, especially when computers came in and now suddenly they had to go back to shift work to keep the computers fed with data. But what he said is, my work gave me the opportunity to put bread on the table for my family. 
grown up in the Depression, he knew the great difficulties of trying to find good labor. And so he, he appreciated the fact that the company had provided a way for him to be honorable as a family man. When I was down at Haiti, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I saw many very hardworking men. Some of them worked there right for the sisters whom I was helping, and I saw others on other projects, and I saw a lot milling around. And clearly, they would work. In fact, many of them who were serving as their equivalent of little motorcycle taxi cabs, they would gladly have worked hard, and they were working as hard as they could with relatively little work to do. They want something that would be honorable and give them a living for their families. And so I think that what John Paul II is doing in talking about this one as an intrinsic evil is that it is treating a person as a mere means to an end and not respecting the person as having an inherent dignity. All these, Vatican II says, and the like, are a disgrace. And so long as they are in as long as they infect human civilization, they contaminate those who inflict them more than those who suffer injustice, and they are a negation of the honor due to the Creator. His, Vatican II is speaking in that sentence, and John Paul II quotes it at length, because in addition to those who are degraded by having to suffer it, they degrade the person who chooses to do them. It is in line with what we said at the beginning of Lecture 12 when we were focusing on the fact that any given action has its consequences, its consequences not only for those affected on the outside, but its effect on the actor. John Paul II, hence, is marvelously clear on the inappropriateness of intrinsic evils, and I think that he has thoroughly refuted the approach of consequentialism and proportionalism and any form of utilitarianism. He is mindful that Intentions can sometimes diminish what is otherwise wrong. He quotes, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, about the way in which there are ways that a good intention can at least somehow lessen a certain culpability. But he is entirely and completely clear that some things may never be undertaken under any circumstances. And I think that this is one of the great fruits of section four of chapter two of Veritatis Splendor. When we return for the next lecture, we will now go on to chapter three, the pastoral chapter, and to the great exhortation and encouragement that it gives. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.